Looks like we're a little light this morning. That's okay. You guys are. Huh? Except for you, Tad. At me, fairly. Uh, this morning, uh, you guys are here for the good stuff. We're going to talk about the Davidic Covenant. Uh, Matthew made the comment, no timeline of truth. This actually fits in because uh, if you remember two weeks ago, uh, in Second Samuel 7, uh, David is um, king of Israel. God has given him rest. He's no longer fighting any major wars with anybody. He's kind of getting the nation in order. He had just brought the ark back to Jerusalem. He's looking around saying, what can I do? And he sees the ark sitting there in the tabernacle in a tent from his big fancy palace that he just built. And he says, this isn't right. I got an idea. I'm going to build God a house. This is a great idea. I'm in a fancy palace. God should have a place for his ark to be. This is a great idea. Let me call the prophet Nathan and see what he thinks about this. And as uh, my Nathan pointed out, um, it seems like David was looking to get God's approval. Um, I was always under the impression that both David and Nathan just kind of went ahead and did this. I think, I think David was actually trying to find out from God what he wanted to do, what God wanted him to do. And um, so Nathan, the prophet, not Nathan, my son, um, or, or Nathan, your son, there's more than one Nathan here, uh, they, he, he, he says, this sounds like a great idea. Go for it. Good. And um, God comes to Nathan that very night and says, hold on a second. You probably should have checked with me first. And this is where God comes and gives David uh, this covenant and says, David, you were going to build for me a house, but that's not the plan. The plan is I'm going to build for you a house. I'm going to build for you a kingdom. And it's going to be an everlasting house, an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting throne. And this is the promise I'm making to you. It's not something you have to do. It's something I'm doing for you. And we call this the Davidic Covenant. And we're going to talk about this a little more in detail here because it's important. It shows up quite a bit in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, it's a basis which we build some of our eschatology on. Uh, there's a reason why we think that... Uh, there's a literal return of Christ, why there's a literal millennial kingdom, why God is going to do something with the nation of Israel after the church age. Uh, and this fits into that and is a part of why we believe that. So um, the basis why many of you, I hope, are dispensationalists is partially because of this Davidic covenant. Uh, that, that builds into why we believe what we believe. And I'm hoping that as you understand this, it will help, help solidify that. You can say, hey, yeah, I, I do agree that this is why I want to be a dispensationalist. Not that being a dispensationalist is, is for dispensationalist's sake, but because I think it's because it's biblical and that's what the Bible teaches. So um, we're going to look at that this morning and talk about that. So let's go ahead and we'll pray before we get started uh, in the teaching this morning. Uh, Matt, would you pray for us this morning? Thank you. Amen. 
Okay, so I also took a little bit of risk here this morning. I did not put any blanks in your notes. This means that instead of you waiting around for me to write something on the board so you can write it in, I'm expecting you to pay attention. So I'm going to, yeah, exactly. So I'm going I'm to trust you to listen and pay attention here. I'm hoping that still with the reading of verses and the candy and stuff that you will still do that. We'll see. Okay, so before we start about to talk about the Davidic covenant, we're going to talk about some types of covenants just to kind of get this in our head. What's a covenant? A covenant is an agreement. It's uh, two people making some kind of agreement. There's a couple types of covenants. There's conditional covenants. A conditional covenant covenant is just a two-person agreement. It's two people making an agreement together. A couple of examples of this in the Bible is the Mosaic Covenant. This is an agreement between two parties. Uh, we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 29, for instance, where God says to Israel, here's what we're going to do. If you, Israel, keep my laws, you obey what I tell you to do, you follow my commandments, my precepts, then I will allow you to dwell in the land, I'll give you safety, I'll give you peace. And so it's, it's conditional upon two things happening. If Israel does what God tells them to do, then God will bless them and, and they'll keep their commandments. However, God says if you don't do that, then you're going to have problems. I'm going to send conquerors. I'm going to send plagues. I'm going to send pestilence. I'm going to do the things that I did to Egypt to you. And we see that throughout their history that as Israel rebelled against God, that God sent other nations to to conquer them, and, and we've seen captivities, and we've seen different things, and Israel, that, that's a conditional covenant, that, it was, that their, their prosperity from God was dependent on them being faithful to what God had commanded them. Um, so that would be a conditional covenant. Another one, and we don't think of it this way, is marriage. This is a, a covenant between two parties. This is a man and a woman coming together and saying, yes, we want to be married, um, you know, it's not a one-person, unconditional thing. It's not the man saying, I'm, I'm giving it to you, and the woman saying, okay, whatever, I don't have a choice in it. It's two people <laughs> making this together. So it's conditional in that sense that it's a two-person type agreement between a, a man and a woman. So that's why it fits in that conditional category. Uh, the other one is unconditional. This is one-sided. One person makes the, the promise, the commitment, and the other party doesn't have any obligation on their part it's just this person says, I'm making this commitment to you, and it's going to happen. And we see this mainly from God to man. And there's five that I list here. The first one is the Noahic covenant. We see this in Genesis 9. Uh, this is after the flood. God promises, basically, I'm, I'm summarizing these. They're probably more, all a little bit more complicated than this. But God promises basically not to destroy the earth again by water. He comes to Noah and says, I'm going to set my rainbow in the clouds, and this is going to be a sign to you that I'm not going to, again, send floods on the earth to destroy the earth. And this is a promise that God makes to Noah. Noah doesn't have to do anything. None of Noah's descendants have to do anything. They don't have to obey God in order for God not to destroy the earth. In fact, you know, we're just as wicked as ever. And God talks about it in the time when the times are like the times of Noah again. That's when his return is at hand. So we know that people are going to be as wicked as that again. But God promised he's not going to destroy the earth again by water. Now, at the end of the age, God is going to destroy the earth again. What's he going to use? Fire. Yeah, so, but he's not going to do it by water. So we have that. Um, the Abrahamic covenant, we see this in Genesis 15, for instance. God promises Abraham basically three things, a seed, a land, and a nation. He promises that you will have a seed. 
And we understand that the seed ultimately is fulfilled in Christ, a land uh, that's Israel. And even beyond that, because God talks about that, the land goes out as far as Euphrates, goes down to Egypt. It is, it's a great extent of a land that Israel has never possessed yet. So we see this as even a future fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And a nation, uh, the nation of his descendants, Israel. So we see that the Abrahamic covenant, the Levitic covenant, or the priestly covenant, um, we see this in Numbers 3, Numbers 18, and Numbers 25. And uh, some people don't put this in the list of covenants. Um, I was a little bit reluctant, but then I read Numbers 25, where God actually says, this is a covenant I make with the Levites. But this is basically that God promises the tribe of Levi, Levi a priesthood and inheritance from the Lord of himself. And again, in, in Numbers 25, he actually uses the term, I make this covenant with you. And so I've included it in here just because of that term being used there. Um, the fourth one is the Davidic covenant, which we're going to talk about this morning, so I didn't summarize that. And then the fifth one is the new covenant, which is in Jeremiah 31, where God promises that Israel will know him and his laws. In fact, he uses the term, it will be written on their hearts. They won't have to learn his laws. And that their iniquity will be forgiven and their sins will be remembered no more. Um, and this seems to be a future thing because this has never happened in Israel that they will just automatically know his laws and that their iniquity and their sins will be washed away. So this is something that's future yet to come. So those are the five unconditional covenants that are listed in the Bible. So before I move on, any questions or thoughts at this point? They're like, but can we read some verses so I can get some candy? Be patient, it's coming. So a little bit of the theology of the Davidic Covenant. Um, the Davidic Covenant is kind of an extension of the Abrahamic Covenant, which you see in Genesis 15. Um, in our passage, we saw that God promises David fame, that his seed will rule as an everlasting kingdom, that there will be safety in the land for Israel. Um, and specifically in this passage, too, we saw that his son would build God's temple. Remember, he promised that, that your son would build the temple, because that was part of what David was coming to do here in, in 1 Samuel 7 was, he wanted to build a temple for God, and God said, no, I'm not going to do it, but your son's going to. Uh, so that was part of the promise here, uh, that God would maintain a father-son relationship towards his dynasty. Um, and we, we see that in, in 2 Samuel here. Uh, the Old Testament continues to confirm that the unconditional niche, nature of the Davidic covenant, and there's many passages that go on to say that this covenant will be upheld by God and will continue on, and we're going to look at some of those. Um, there's also possibilities of the interruption of his fulfillment. What we mean by that is that there's times where there wouldn't be a son of David on the throne of Israel. In fact, right now there's no son of David on the throne of Israel. Israel, even though it's a nation, has a prime minister and a parliament. I mean, it's not a kingdom right now. And so David's son is not ruling in Israel. It's, it's not, we don't see that at the moment. So it's, it's interrupted right now. Um, and then even after the Babylonian captivity, there's a passage in Amos that offers the hope of a future restoration of the Davidic kingdom. So uh, God continues to remind Israel that I made this promise to David, I'm going to fulfill it. And that's part of the reason that we look to this future coming of this kingdom, that there's some hope in the future that there's still going to be a king that comes and rules on the throne of David. Um, the New Testament also points us to Christ as the rightful heir to David's throne, and we see that in passages like Luke 1. Um, God shows it will fulfill its promise uh, to the millennial kingdom in his time, 
and that his plan will include salvation for the Gentiles. And so part of what he's doing is uh, providing salvation for us also. Um, in 2 Samuel 7.16, God summarizes the Davidic covenant in three terms, a house, a kingdom, and a throne. And this is important. We'll see this in, in a passage later on. So I want you to remember those three things, a house, a kingdom, and a throne. Uh, these three things were promised to David to endure forever and will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ, namely in the millennial kingdom, although that will continue on. Um, we know that uh, one of the pastors talks about that uh, Jesus at the end of the millennial kingdom will offer the kingdom up to the Father, and he will still reign, but it will be given to God the Father also, uh, where Christ, the heir of David's house, will literally reign on David's throne in David's kingdom. And so the millennial kingdom will be the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. So that's kind of theology. I'm going to move on here. Um, this, this is one of the things I think is very important, this next question. Uh, so is the David kingdom now transferred to the church? And you might ask, well, what does that mean? Well, there's, there's kind of a couple of thoughts here. There's, there's the idea that we hold to, which is that there's going to be a literal fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in the future in the millennial kingdom. And then there's a thought that, well, there's a spiritual fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, that Christ in some way is already fulfilling that. And let, let me read this because this kind of summarizes it. Some theologian, theologians argue that the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus as the Messiah, which they kind of have, but that, that the promise of the kingdom has now somehow been transferred to a, from a literal kingdom for Israel to a spiritual kingdom for the church and that the church is now the spiritual kingdom of Christ. This is either seen as Christ ruling in heaven, that it's transferred instead of a literal kingdom on earth to the spiritual kingdom in heaven where David's throne is now in heaven and Christ is sitting on David's throne in heaven, or Christ ruling in our hearts, and thus in either of these cases, his kingdom is a spiritual one which is lived out in the church. And so Christ is ruling in his kingdom over the church as the church being his kingdom. Does that kind of make sense? And you'll hear this, that the church is now the kingdom of God. Um, and so the question I ask is, has the Davidic kingdom taken on this new form, this new form in the church? Are we the kingdom of God? And, and you'll hear this, and, and it'll, be, it'll subtly show up, and, and you see this sometimes in hymns where it talks about the church being the kingdom of God or that we're bringing in the kingdom and stuff. And, and it's, it's subtly in there in these things, and you watch out for it, and you have to realize that some of our hymn writers were um, uh, Reformed theologians, covenant theologians that held this kind of view. And so even though they, they, they believed a lot of the same things about salvation, even though they believed some of the same theology, they had some of these things in here, and you'll see them come into some of the theologies and some of the hymns and different things that we read, and, and you'll hear them talk about the church being the kingdom, and this is where it's coming from that Christ is over his kingdom now. So, so how would we respond to this? Well, I think an interesting passage is in Acts 1.6. And uh, so first, let's look at what the disciples, after the resurrection, they have this question on their mind because Jesus had been preaching the kingdom throughout his ministry, right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Go out and preach the kingdom. Preach, preach repentance in the kingdom of God. And he's been telling his disciples to preach the kingdom the whole time he's been on earth. And now Jesus Christ goes to the cross, he dies, he's resurrected. He tells them to go out and make disciples of all nations. And 
he's about to be resurrected, and the disciples have on mind, what about the kingdom? What's going on with the kingdom? Are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? And look at Acts 1, 6 through 8. And what the, the, who wants to read that? So we've got to work to the reading point here. Matthew. So in their mind, you know, Christ is the son of David. He's the one who's going to fulfill the promise to reign on David's throne. He's there to restore the kingdom. So their natural question is, is it now time to restore the kingdom? Are you going to sit on David's throne and bring in the kingdom of God? That was Christ's answer. He doesn't really answer with, uh, well, actually, you know, in about 67 days, we're going to bring in the kingdom here. So get ready. Get your swords together. We're going to fight. No, he, he gives them kind of a, an, almost a non-answer. It's not for you to know the time. We're not restoring the kingdom now. That's not the plan anymore. We're going to a different plan. We're going to plan B here, to, so to speak. It's not really plan B. It's God's plan. right? God knew this plan all along. So I'm not saying that there's a plan B here. But it's not the kingdom plan anymore. There's a new plan here. This is the church plan now. right? So he's, he's, he's basically saying... It's not the kingdom plan anymore. The kingdom plan is putting on hold now. What your plan is now, you go and wait for the power to come on high. We're going we're gonna to go with this other plan, this new plan, the church plan, the plan that I've just introduced recently about this church, and that's where we're going to go. And we're going to do something different. And, and he doesn't give them all the details, but they're going to figure this out in, in a, a a few days as they come to Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they start the church. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and shall be witnesses to me in Judea and Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the new plan. The new plan is you go out and tell people about my death and resurrection and you start making disciples of people. We're not bringing in the kingdom now. So, so Jesus does not completely answer their question other than say then you cannot know the time of the kingdom. Basically, when you get this kind of answer, it's like, okay, we're not, we're not, we're not doing the kingdom at this time. Uh, notice he does not correct their statement that there is still a kingdom to Israel. He's not saying, oh, when's the kingdom coming in? Well, the kingdom's the church, guys. Yeah. You missed the whole point. We're, it's not going to be a literal kingdom anymore. The church is going to be the kingdom, guys. How did you miss that? He doesn't correct their thinking. He doesn't say there's no kingdom anymore. What he says is the time of the kingdom's not now, it's later. So he's not saying the kingdom's been spiritualized into something new. He's saying, okay, it's, it's put off now, you're doing something different. Do so you see the, the difference in the point here? If the kingdom's the church, if he's ruling somehow in their hearts or he's going to rule from heaven, this is the perfect opportunity for him to tell them, hey guys, here, here's how the kingdom's going to work. Because they're asking very specifically, when's the kingdom coming in? When are, we gonna, when are you going to rule on the throne, Jesus? And Jesus is going to say, hey, look, I'm already ruling on the throne. I'm ruling in your hearts, guys. I've resurrected. The victory's won. We have the kingdom now. This is what the kingdom looks like now. He could tell them that. He doesn't. He says, you don't know when the kingdom's coming. It's coming sometime in the future. You just don't know when it is. So there's a future kingdom coming. It's just not now. So he doesn't correct them on that. Um, 
There's still a kingdom to come. Also, as the answer refers that the kingdom is still far in the future, much farther than the next set of events, then that's the receiving of power that takes place at Pentecost, the receiving of the Holy Spirit. So, so Jesus very, very clearly, I think, tells them that there isn't, the, the kingdom is still coming. It, it hasn't changed form. It hasn't changed into some spiritual kingdom. There's still a physical kingdom coming. I think his answer clearly shows them that. It just tells them that there's now going to be a gap in between when they thought the kingdom was going to come and when it actually is going to come. And we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, further, as you read through Scripture, I'm not going to go through and prove this because I don't have weeks and weeks to do this, but a literal throne and kingdom was understood by David. It was understood by Solomon. It was understood by Mary when, when the angel appeared to her. It's understood by Jesus' disciples just by the way they asked the question here. It was either understood by, un, understood by unsaved Jews of Jesus' time. They all understood a literal kingdom. And as they read scripture, they knew that when God had promised a kingdom to David, that this was a literal kingdom. This wasn't some spiritual kingdom. Uh, the language of scripture does not support a spiritual king, but a literal king. And let's turn to Psalm 110, because I think... Um, Psalm 110 will show this. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you have your Bibles. If you're coming to church without your Bibles, start bringing your Bible. Who wants to read Psalm 110? Nathan, go ahead. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall set a rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the People shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn, and you will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall ex- execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brooks by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Look at verses 5 and 6. Uh, he shall execute kings in the days of his wrath. How, how do you spiritualize that? <laughs> he shall judge among the nations. Okay, he has to kind of be among the nations, judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. How, how do you spiritualize filling places with dead bodies? Um, he shall execute the heads of many countries. These are all very specific things. These are not things that you spiritualize. These are things talking about a real king doing real things, right? These, these are real acts of heads of states of somebody who's leading countries. You know, they're not, it's not, the Bible's not talking about a spiritual kingdom here, that he's spiritually executing people and spiritually creating dead bodies. This is, this is real, live, kingdom-type activities. So, to, to try to spiritualize these types of passages is, is just, you have to work hard to take these out of context and say this refers to some spiritual kingdom. This is, this is talking about real stuff that's happening. Um, anyway, um, so uh, the language of the Old Testament is so specific that only a literal fulfillment of a future king on David's throne will satisfy the nature of these Old Testament passages. This is just one example, by the way. This is over and over as you see these prophecies concerning the future kingdom of Christ, that you see that 
the nature of the way this is written, you have to take these passages literally or you're working very hard to work around and say, well, this doesn't mean what it says it means. This, this really can't refer to that. And, it, and it, you know, it's like I, I was talking to Dr. Taylor about, um, you know, we have to give him directions to Thomas's house this afternoon because he's going to come over there and we're going to meet with him. And it'd be like me saying, well, here's the directions. You, you, you know, you go... You go two miles northeast, but it could be 10 miles or it could be 20. You know, it's, it's kind of vague. And it might not be northeast. It's kind of north or maybe it's east or maybe, maybe it's even south. I mean, just go however you feel because it does, really doesn't... It, that's ridiculous, right? But that's how you almost have to read the Bible. It's like, well, it's, it's dead bodies. But it's not really dead bodies. It's really, you know, people that aren't saved or it's, you know, it really might not even be people at all. Who knows what it is it's talking about? I, yeah, they might not even be dead. It might be just people who are just not thinking. You know, it, what do you do with that? I mean, how do you, how do you deal with uh, executed heads of states? Or it's not really heads of states. It's not really talking about nations. It's you're really working hard to get around what the passage says, and there, it, it, it's so specific here. It's so literal. You have to take it literally. And again, this is one passage out of many where it, 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 the language requires you to really say, hey, this is really talking about something that's real, something that's really happening, something that the Bible is saying. This is specifically what's going to happen in Christ's kingdom. Um, and then uh, going on here, in Romans 11, now Romans 9 through 11, as we understand Romans, Romans 9 and 11, uh, Paul starts talking about Israel and um, as he's going through Romans and he's laying out theology, he comes to the question of what, what's going on with Israel because uh, right now God is working mainly with Gentiles to save Gentiles. So has God abandoned Israel? Has God cut off Israel? And, you know, you get pastors like the, the vine and the, the natural branches are cut off and the, the wild branches are grafted in. And has God abandoned those natural gra- the branches? And, and God gives us the warning, you know, if God cut off the natural branches to graft us in, and we're unfaithful, God can cut off those wild branches and graft back in the natural branches, right? So there's a warning in there for us. Uh, but Paul's trying to tell us that God's not abandoned Israel. He's put them off for now, but he still has a plan for his nation, for his people, that these are his chosen people, that uh, he, he's... Uh, um, he has something that he's going to do with them yet. So in Romans 11, Paul presents an interesting argument that when the time of the Gentiles is finished, what we might call the age of grace or the church age, that God is going to perform a special work of salvation in Israel in which all of Israel will be saved. Somebody read that passage here, Romans 11, 25 through 29. Go ahead, Jonathan. For I cannot desire, brothers, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are revocable. So here, um, you know, the, the things I want to point out here is that, um, you know, Israel right now, they're, they're blinded for the most part, to, to what's, what God's program is until the fullness of the Gentiles. Well, what's the fullness of the Gentiles? The fullness of the Gentiles is 
so God accomplishes what he wants with the Gentiles. And so basically God's to the point where he's going to save, everybody's going to save at the end of the church age. And we have the rapture of Christ and the church is taken up and we get to the tribulation, right? That's going to be the fullness of the Gentiles. And God's going to go back to dealing with Israel. He's going to go, there's going to be a tribulation where he's going to basically reveal to Israel their need for the Messiah. At the end of the tribulation, Christ appears and then we get this, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness for Jacob. Um, and, and verse 26 there, I missed the part. And so all Israel, all Israel will be saved. That Israel is going to turn back, and they're going to see their Messiah, and they're going to realize, oh, that's who Jesus is. And God has a plan for Israel that this, that this whole thing, this whole tribulation bringing up to this point where Christ's return is so that he can save his people Israel. That's, that's his plan there. This is what God's doing, and he's reserving that time to save Israel. And I put that, well, this does not prove that Jesus will fill the Davidic covenant. It doesn't say anything about Christ coming back to the throne of David. Um, the proponents of a spiritual fulfillment of the covenant do not hold to God returning to an economy of dealing directly with the nation of Israel after the time of the church. So, the people who have a Reformed theology who would say that the Christ is spiritually reigning over the church and stuff, they, would, they don't believe in this kind of second coming of Christ where he's going to deal with Israel and they don't believe in the literal millennium. They would reject this whole thing, but Romans 11 makes it clear that after the time of the church, Christ is going to come back to have this time where he comes to save Israel, to... to to deal directly with Israel, to seek out their salvation. And so if you take this passage, Romans 11, literally say, hey, Christ has something special planned for Israel after the time of the church, you also have to say, okay, we have to take the Davidic covenant literally too. They work hand in hand together. So literal fulfillment of the new covenant of Israel also supports this view. If you look at the new covenant that we talked about, that Israel will know him and his laws, and God's going to take away their sins, and their sins will be forgiven, and their sins will be remembered no more. That also fits in with Romans 11, what he's doing here. That all works together. And when you take all these passages and put them together, this all makes sense. If you start spiritualizing all these things, then none of these passages make any sense together. The Davidic covenant doesn't make any sense without the new covenant, without Romans 11. They all work together. And so you have to start throwing all this out, and you have to say, well, Romans 11 doesn't make any sense, and we have to spiritualize the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant applies to the church somehow, even though it talks about Israel and how they will know God and how their sins will be forgiven and how their trespasses will be remembered no more. You know, you start tearing apart Scripture, and, and none of it really means what it says. And so is the Davidic kingdom now transferred to church? I would say no. God's still looking to do that in the future with Israel. And if you hold to the word of God, being the word of God and saying what it means, and I was talking to Dr. Taylor too, there, there are passages where there's symbolism used. There's passages where there's some allegory used. But you know, it, it's very specific passages. It's very clear when that's done. And for the most part, we take the word of God to say what the word of God says and what it means. And we need to trust that and believe that. And when God makes a promise to Israel, he's making the promise to Israel. When God says he's going to keep that promise with Israel, he's going to keep that promise with Israel. And we need to trust that and believe that. Does that make sense? I hope, I hope that's, that's clear. That's, that's, that's the viewpoint I take at any rate, and I hope that you see that. So...
Okay, so how does this all fit in with the rest of Scripture? Well, there's a lot of passages that in Old Testament and New Testament that quote or allude to or um, reference this passage in 2 Samuel 7. I've given you some of them, and I've referenced some others, and I probably missed a bunch of them. So we'll look at a few of them and take some time with that. So first of all, in the Old Testament... So parallel passage of 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 29 is 1 Chronicles 17, 1 through 27. If you don't know Chronicles, uh, 1 and 2 Chronicles parallel uh, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. Actually, 1 Chronicles even goes back as far as creation and parallels even some of the early history of the world. So um, it was always uh, something that I, I kind of struggled with as we started in 1 Samuel. Like, should I include 1 Chronicles in this because we're... There's a lot of parallel passages there. Um, we didn't do that, so I don't know what we're going to do when we get to that point. Well, that's ways down the line. That's right where we're going. Won't worry about that now. Um, so you have that parallel passage there, and we've referenced some of the stuff in First Chronicles as we've gone through this where there's been some interesting information added. Uh, so you've seen that. Uh, First Kings is another passage here. First Kings chapter 8. Um, this is... Uh, uh, Solomon speaking, I believe. First Kings 8, verse 15. Who would like to read that? Abigail, go ahead. So here, uh, uh, Solomon acknowledges uh, just part of the story here where uh, David would desire to build the temple for God, and God came to him and said, you're not going to build the temple, but your son is going to do that. And Solomon acknowledges that um, I have gone ahead and fulfilled that part of the promise there, that uh, God put me on the throne and that I have uh, succeeded in building a temple for God just as he promised, and I sit on the throne of Israel uh, and that uh, God has given me the throne of my father David and, and so has perpetuated that uh, promise that he made that David's son would build the temple. So acknowledgement of at least part of what was going on in the passage in First Samuel 7. So that's um, Solomon confirms that part of that at least has occurred. A um, couple of places in Psalms now, Psalm 89, 3 and 4. Um, whoever reads this one can read both those, so go ahead. Jana?
So in these passages here in Psalm 89, uh, it confirms the unconditional nature of the Davidic covenant. Um, it shows that God will establish David's descendants as kings forever, from now to eternity. Even uh, he says this will be established forever like the moon, uh, like the faithful witness in the sky. So, um, you know, we wake up every morning and the sun rises. Uh, we see the moon all the time. And just like that, God has established his covenant. Um, part of the passage I admitted, omitted here, uh, because you see verses are missing, uh, it talks about that there, um, and, and part of what God promised to David is that when there's correction needed in Second Samuel 7, that God would correct him like a, he corrects a son. And part of this passage in Psalm 89 talks about that correction that was needed, that God would correct him as a son, uh, but he wouldn't take away the, the promise uh, to David's descendants that uh, he would keep his covenant. And so, um, very interesting passage. It's funny because in my Bible reading, I've been reading through Psalms, and um, I think it was either Friday or Saturday, I came to Psalm 89 in my Bible reading, so it was like it was very timely for me that, uh, oh yeah, that's that's one of the passages there. So, Psalm 89 was in my Bible reading. I, I just thought that was nice timing on my Bible reading for whatever reason. Um, so Psalm 89. Psalm 132 is another passage. Who would like to read that? Josiah. The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons shall also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. Um, Psalm 132 here acknowledges that there could be interruptions in the Davidic covenant. If It says, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit on your throne forever. So, obviously, if they don't keep the covenant and testimony, there's a possibility of them not sitting on the throne. And we've seen that, you know, descendants of David were wicked, and uh, God did remove the throne from Israel for a time. And, again, it's still not, there's still no king over Israel at this point. Uh, but uh, it also, also says, uh, the Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it, and I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. That's going to happen still. And so there, there is the truth there that uh, there will be a descendant of David on the throne at some point in time in the future. So Psalm 132 confirms that. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Another reader, please. Joanna. This, this uh, passage we like to read at Christmas time because of that first part, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then, but verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order and establish it with judgment and justice, from this time forward, even forever. And so part of that, part of the, the promise of the child is that he will be a king on the throne of David and on David's kingdom. And that's part of the promise of the Christmas story is that the, the child that's born is going to be a descendant of David to rule on his throne and over his kingdom. And so that was a promise that was given to Isaiah to prophesy about. Jeremiah 23, we'd like to read that. Ted? Behold, the days are coming, 
sovereign, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. The king shall reign and prosper, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will go safely. Now, this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. So interesting. Does anybody know about what time frame the prophet Jeremiah prophesied during? Yeah, right, right at the end of the kingdom of Judah. In fact, Jeremiah was, uh, when the, Judah was carried into exile, Jeremiah escaped to Egypt. Uh, so he saw the fall of Judah. Um, he's called the weeping prophet. He wrote uh, um, Lamentations also. Uh, but he saw Judah fall, and he actually escaped. He didn't go into the Babylonian portion of the captivity. Uh, so he's obviously not talking about the Judah king that was there because that guy was a wicked guy. He's talking about a future king. The days are coming that will raise to David a branch of righteousness. So that's not the king that's there right now, as he's prophesying. The king shall reign and prosper. Obviously not a king that's carried off in captivity is a king that will reign and prosper. He's going to execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved. Uh, again, the Old Testament concept of salvation oftentimes is a rescue, a deliverance from an enemy, uh, a physical deliverance. They're not physically being saved. They're physically being carried off into captivity. So it's not talking about right then. Israel dwell in safety. And just in case you were still thinking it might still be this king, know that this is the name by which he will be called. It's going to be the Lord, our righteousness. So this, he's going to be called by the name of the Lord. The Lord, our righteousness, could be called by the name of God. Uh, so this is a future king who is also going to be uh, the king uh, uh, who is of the line of David, who is also going to be called God, the Lord, our righteousness. So Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, verses 20 and 21. Who would like to read that? Lynn, go ahead. Thus says the Lord, Okay, so if you can break God's covenant with day and the covenant with night, so if you can keep day and night from happening, you can also break his covenant with David to not have a king on his throne. So um, has anybody been able to break God's covenant with day or night? No, you haven't been able to do that. So that's how strong God's covenant with David is, that he's going to have a son reign on his throne. And notice there also, and this is, again, another reason why I included that Levitical covenant at the beginning, because he includes this covenant with Levites, the priest, his ministers. So uh, apparently that's another reason uh, to include that in that list of covenants at the beginning, because he, he does mention that in this, in the same vein as this covenant with David. Um, so that's... That's another argument for why I included that. If you, if you don't like that, I include the Levitical covenant at the beginning. Anyway, side note. Uh, Jeremiah 33, so that was at Amos 9. Uh, Lemuel. On that day, I will rise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it. Who are called by my name, says the Lord, who 
So Amos writes this, um, talking about the tabernacle of, of David, the tent of David, uh, the house of David, that God will raise it back up because it has fallen down and repair its damages. So this is that time when David's house is not reigning. God says he's going to repair it. He's going to build it back up. And also, this talks about giving a blessing to Edom and the Gentiles. So God not only is going to bless Israel because of this, but also he promises a blessing to the Gentiles. And I think uh, a good indication is that this is through Christ providing salvation to, uh, I think, probably most of us in here. You guys of Jewish descent at all? all? Are you of Jewish descent at all? No. Okay, so I think most of us here are Gentiles. I, I don't know if there's anybody here with Jewish descent. So we're, we're a benefit of Christ's sacrifice because we would have been outside the Jewish nation. We had to convert and become Jews in order to have a benefit in the Old Testament. Now God has opened up his salvation to Jews and Gentiles through the death of Christ. So because of Messiah's death, we are now included in that blessing. So Amos 9 provides that. So you have that. Um, a couple other passages you can look up later. Jeremiah 38 and 9. Uh, and also verse 30, uh, Jeremiah 33, 14 through 17, Ezekiel 37, 24 through 25, and Hosea 3, 4, and 5. Um, also in the New Testament, um, John 7, 42, short one. Who wants to read that and get some free candy for one verse? No volunteers. If you want to do a second time, you can. Ted, go ahead. Okay, and so this was brought up by religious leaders who were arguing that um, Jesus couldn't be the Christ because he's from Galilee. Um, and they, they were not uh, knowing their history very well because Christ was born in Bethlehem of the town of David, but they were making an argument that it can't be the Christ because he's from Galilee. Uh, but they were quoting scripture, right? Has not the scripture that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So they... Um, they understood the scripture and said he has to be from the seed of David. He has to come from David's line. He has to come from David's house. That's where the Christ, and of course Christ being the New Testament term for the Messiah, for uh, the, the anointed one of God. So, so even the, the, Old Test, or the New Testament leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes of the time who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah knew the scripture well enough to know that the Messiah had to come from the seed of David. Um, Acts 13, verses uh, 22 and 23. Nathan. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. So here, uh, Paul is... uh, uh, preaching here in uh, Antioch, and he uh, references uh, that from David's seed that God raised up Jesus. Uh, obviously, a reference that the Messiah is coming from David's seed again, uh, but also uh, showing that not only is he the king that God promised, but also the Savior uh, coming from the seed of David. Uh, so, the uh, interesting passage there that he connects. Uh, the future king of Israel with also the Savior. Uh, Acts 2.29 and 30. Abigail?
And so here's Peter preaching on Pentecost that he, uh, um, he's referencing a, a passage in the Old Testament and uh, talking about David being dead. He couldn't have been talking about himself being raised from the dead, but he's talking about his seed, uh, Jesus the Christ, uh, who would be raised from the dead. Uh, and he mentions that he would sit on his throne, on David's throne, that this was the one to fulfill of course, the covenant, the Davidic covenant here, and he's going to connect him with being the one that you need to believe in to be saved, the one who you need to trust in to have salvation, to have your sins forgiven. Uh, so he makes that connection between the Davidic covenant and Jesus being the Savior that they need. Um, another very important passage here, Luke 1. Uh, who would like to read this? Joanna. Okay, so remember at the beginning I talked about the, um, in the theology of the Davidic covenant, I talked about the three things that you would have a, a throne, uh, a kingdom, and I don't remember what the third thing was. So there's a memory loss thing, a throne, kingdom, and house. And then look at what the angel Gabriel says to Mary here. Jesus will be given the throne of David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob um, and house of David and, and that idea also, and that his kingdom will have no end. It will be an everlasting kingdom. So he ties those three things and those three concepts in as he talks to Mary here. And you can see, uh, talking about the throne of his father, David, it, it references this, this covenant, this passage of the Davidic covenant that Jesus is going to fulfill this, uh, being the son of David, that the throne of his father, David, he will reign over the house of Jacob and his kingdom will have no end. These three concepts that are paramount in that, that passage in 2 Samuel 7, 18 uh, are tied in in that this, this prophecy that's given to Mary. So very important there. Uh, and then Hebrews 1, 5. This one was pointed out to me, and I thought this was good because I never saw this, but uh, somebody read Hebrews 1, 5. Uh, Matthew, go ahead. For to which of the angels did you And I, I never saw this, and I'm, I would have passed over it, but somebody pointed this out. You look at 2 Samuel 7, 14. Uh, God says to David, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And that, that's very similar to what's in Hebrews 1, 5 there, right? And it, it goes on to say, if he commits iniquity, I will chase him with the rod of men and the blows of the son of men. But I, I'm like, well, that's, that's pretty close to be a coincidence there. Um, and so... There seems to be a connection there um, as the author of Hebrews is showing that Christ is uh, greater than the angels. Um, he seems to be, maybe to the Hebrew writers, they would see that and make that connection, that reference to the Davidic covenant, that, that Christ is the fulfillment of this, this prophecy, that he is greater than the angels. Um, so God's unconditional promise to David cannot be fulfilled in David himself or in his son Solomon or any of the kings of Israel. Uh, the everlasting nature of David's house, the throne and kingdom, requires an everlasting seed to fulfill the promise God made to David. These promises will be literally fulfilled. They're not being fulfilled in some spiritual sense in the church. Christ is the heir who ultimately will fulfill this promise which was made to David. So I think you can see overall that this is very important to who Christ is, that he's the only one that can actually fulfill this promise that God made to David and that 
uh, he will do this in this upcoming future event. And it's important for us to understand in terms of our theology of who Christ is and what God's going to be doing in, in the future, in the end-time events, to know that, that Christ is the one who will fulfill this and that that's a future event that is going to happen literally. And it's something we await uh, coming sometime soon in relative terms. We don't know when, but uh, that, that we're looking forward to in the future. So before I go to takeaways, any thoughts or questions or comments? I might take more candy because I did a lot of reading today. I might take the whole rest of that because I did so much reading. Anyway, um, I don't need the rest of the candy. Takeaways. So the New Testament points to Christ as the heir of the Davidic covenant. These promises assure us Christ's kingdom will come. 2 Samuel 7 shows us several ways to prepare for Christ's kingdom. Um, So five ways here. Number one, by counting your blessings. And and this is looking back at uh, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 1 to 3. David uh, recounts how God has blessed him. And it was when David perceived that God had defeated his enemies and settled him that he desired to build a house for God. He looked around and he saw that, uh, what God had done for him. And by the death and resurrection for our sins, Christ defeated our enemies on the cross and gave us peace with God. Because of God's blessings, we are motivated to worship him in both words. Uh, Hebrews 13.5 tells us that the, the words are, are the fruit of our lips and that we worship God through that, and our actions. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tell us that uh, our lives ought to be reflect the worship of God. Uh, so we ought to be worshiping God both in, in what we say and what we do. And uh, as we look at how God's blessed us in our lives, that ought to be a reflection that we worship him in both our, our, what we say and what we do. So count your blessings. Number two, by studying God's promises. Uh, verses 4 through 17. Uh, the New Testament points us to Christ as the heir to the Davidic covenant. It's only un- when we understand the promises God has made to us that we can enjoy the hope that God has in store for us. Knowing God's promise of the heir of David, we are motivated to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Uh, in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, it says that we do not know what we will become, but we know that when we see him, we will become like him. And then verse 3 tells us that uh, this uh, ought to motivate us to live for Christ, that we ought to ought to go on and live for him. But I want to um, look at Titus 2. If you turn there, I'm probably going to steal a little bit of your thunder, Dr. Taylor. But uh, this is such a good passage, Titus 2, 11 through 14. And, and in verse 11 it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And we know the grace, that unmerited favor, the undeserved favor that God gave us. It brings about salvation. That's how we're saved. And, and the, but the verse 12 says it's teaching us. So it goes on. It's not just for our salvation, but it's teaching us. It's, it's allowing us to learn to do things, right? God's grace continues to work in our lives. That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, so denying these bad things, this ungodliness, this worldly lust, that, that these things are being purged out of our lives. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly. And the, the funny thing here is that ungodliness and godly are, are just opposite of each other. Imagine that in this present age. So we, we, we take all these bad things out of our life and we start living the right way. But look what the motivation is. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What motivates us to live? 
the grace of God helps us to do that, but our motivation is that we're looking forward to Christ's return. We're looking forward to his coming. And as we study God's promises that he's returning, and, and part of that is we, you know, we look at the Davidic covenant, Christ is going to come and he's going to reign and he's going to be the king over all. And we looked at that one verse where um, it talks about that he's going to be called the Lord, our righteousness, and he's going to, he's going to reign with righteousness and he's going to, he's going to reign the right way and everything's going to be good. And we look forward to that, and it should motivate us to live right now the right way, that we would be doing the right things, that we'd be living in a godly way, in a righteous way, in a sober way in our lives, because we're looking forward to him coming. We're very excited about that. And that ought to affect the way we live. And, and we think about that. We're looking forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, um, who gave himself for us, and we're also looking back at what he did that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. He, he died for us not just so that we can be saved, not so that we can have that fire insurance that we can be, you know, okay, we're saved now, great, now we can do whatever we want, but that he saved us so that he can purify ourselves, so that we uh, can be purified and that we can be his special people and that we can be zealous, that we can be excited, that we can be ready to do every good work for him. That's his purpose for us. And part of that motivation there, again, among other things, is that looking forward to his coming. And those things motivate us. And those are a couple of verses that tell us. By studying God's promise, by knowing that he intends good things for us in the future, it motivates us to live for him. And that's just one of the motivations. It's not the only motivation, but it's one of those motivations that we can look forward and see that God plans these good things for us, so we want to live for him now and do what's right for him now. Uh, number three, by walking in humility. David knew he did not deserve God's blessings, but he acknowledged them. He, he received them. Romans 12 tells us not to think more highly than we ought, but according to the measure of faith God has given us. That's in Romans 12.3. Uh, humility is seeing yourself as you really are in light of God's words, in light of God's word. You know, I, I think sometimes we get this idea that humility is being down on ourselves and, and like feeling like, oh, we're so awful, we're so scummy, we're so terrible. And that, that's not true. It's, 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 it's seeing us as we are. Um, but God's blessings were not given to David to promote David, but to bring glory to God. And David says that a number of times. I'm, you know, I know, God, you're not doing this for my sake. You're doing this for your sake. Um, and David's response was not, response was not one of pride, but to submit to God and to choose to serve God's purpose. Ten times David says, I'm your servant, God. Your servant, your servant, your servant throughout this passage. And so David was humble before God. Number four, by praising God. David acknowledged how great, sovereign, and unique, and awesome God is to redeem a people for himself and promise them a kingdom. This is evident to Israel because God redeemed them out of Egypt, settled them in the promised land, and gave them victory over their enemies. The redemption God provided us on the cross should make us want to sound out praise for him. So um, we have been saved from so much. We have so much reason to praise God. That ought to be the attitude of our lives, that we're praising God in everything. Even, even when circumstances are hard, even when things are difficult in our lives, we have more than enough to praise God for. That ought to be the attitude of our lives. And then by praying with confidence. David prayed to God knowing it was, God was fully able to do what he had promised to do. You know, he prayed back to God, God, let this happen. Let your covenant be fulfilled. God just told him he was going to do this. And David prayed back, God, let it happen. God, you know, and I, I look at that and go, David, God just told you he was going to do that. Why are you praying that back to, to let this be fulfilled? Well, David knew that God was going to do it. 
Uh, God desires that we pray knowing that he is able to do what he has promised if we ask according to his will. And John 5, 14 and 15 tells us if we pray according to his will, we are confident that he will do that. As we know what God's will is, he has what he has promised to do, promised to us, that he, what he desires for us, what is good and what is right, we can pray, pray confidently for God. So we need to know what God's will is for us. We need to know his word. And, you know, pray according to what God's word says. Pray according to what his will is for us. You know, if I'm praying for someone to be saved, guess what? That's God's will. God desires all men to be saved. If I'm praying that, you know, I would walk in righteousness today, that's God's will for me. If I'm praying that, um, you know, relationships would be fixed. If I'm praying that uh, people would respond rightly to God's word. These are things we can pray for. We know what God's will is. So we know God's word. We know what his will is. Pray according to God's will. Excuse me. I think my voice is going. Um, any thoughts or questions or anything anybody wants to add or comment? There's a whole lot more that could be said about covenants, the Davidic covenant. I'm not uh, presenting this as like the uh, end all of all things about the Davidic covenant, but I'm hoping it helps out some if you had any questions on it or um you know, maybe a place to start. There's certainly more you could read or study about it. So um, hopefully it's a good starting point. Next week we'll get back into the passage, Second uh, Samuel chapter 8. So that's where we'll be. Um, nobody else seems to have a comment. Let's close in prayer. Lynn, will you close us in prayer?